Hello and welcome on The Barricades. This is your most exciting weekly political show delivered to you by Eastern European lefties. So, uh, I'm Boyan Stanislavski. I'm the host of the show and the usual co-host of our show. Maria Chernat is also with us. Hello, Maria. Hello. And our special guest, Mark Sloboda. Mark Sloboda is an international security expert who served in the United States Navy before studying at Moscow's Lomonosov University and the London School of Economics. He is now a senior lecturer and researcher at Moscow State University. And judging by his Facebook feed, Mark is also an animal lover. Hello, Mark. Welcome to the show. Boy and Maria, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the barricades. Great. Okay, Mark. Great. So uh, before I ask you to uh, assess the security situation uh, globally, uh, particularly in Eastern Europe, of course, uh, where we're all based, I'd like to hear your thoughts on, you know, on the most recent developments. Uh, the mainstream media is obsessively reporting or has been obsessively reporting for the last 48 hours on, on the new nefarious Russian plot, you know. Specifically this time, uh, the Russians apparently intend to install some kind of puppet government in Kiev. Uh, the information comes from, you might want to sit down for this, anonymous sources, and the evidence for that is classified. So, uh, you know, let us recall that the Russians have been just about to launch an imminent aggression against Ukraine since uh, early November of last year. They were supposed to be uh, amassing troops near Ukraine's border. Uh, there is no evidence for any of these claims, really. The stories became uh, become increasingly, okay, increasingly fantastic. I'm, 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 and, okay, so what exactly is this? Is this a sign of, I don't know, some kind of desperation, lack of coherent propaganda ideas? What do you make out of it? Okay, so let's... Let's start at, at, at the background, uh, you know, principally here from the Russian perspective. As far as the Russian perspective is concerned, the democratically elected government of Ukraine, Viktor Yanukovych, was overthrown in an openly U.S. and European-backed putsch uh, violently and unconstitutionally in 2014. Um the multiple agreements, power sharing agreements were passed over and the president was effectively chased out of the country by uh, right wing militias. Right. And when I, when I say right wing, it's far right. We're, we're talking Banderite fascists, the right sector. Um, and um, these were in service to the new regime that seized power. Um, the new prime minister was handpicked uh, by the uh, Victoria Newland, the, the, the neocon at the Obama State Department, uh, and the uh, U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Jeffrey Piet, and they were caught on tape talking yes. openly about it. Yats is our man. Yats is our man, and f the EU. I mean, you know, they, those lines are as classic as handing out cookies on the Maidan. Although, it, it, to be said, it wasn't only the United States. It wasn't only Newland and McCain. You had Baroness Ashton on the ground doing photo ops with the neo-Nazi Oleg Tianbak, who was one of the three big leaders of the Maidan at the time, you know, and Andre Perubi, you know, was the one, the neo-Nazi uh, who was, you know, the former colleague of Tianbak, who was leading the Maidan so-called self-defense forces, right? The nascent, but that would become the battalions. Um, and it is far more than likely that the sacralizing event at the end of the Maidan, the shooting of police uh, and protesters both, 
occurred at the hands of Peruvi. Uh, his, uh, um, you know, uh, Nassim's So they shot their, their own people, basically. They shot they their shot own their people own in people. order to yeah. make it more credible, look more yes. credible. Yeah. Yes, it was, a, it was a false flag. It was a false flag. And that was the event that justified the overthrowing of Yanukovych um, and the ignoring of the power-sharing agreement, the February 21st agreement that the EU had agreed to. And then everything was swept aside. And this wasn't simply an event like the Orange Revolution, where then the forces of East Ukraine retrenched in the Rada and were able to fight back and then win the next election. No, the opposition parties were banned. They were lustrated. They were pogrom. The communists and every other leftist party in the country was banned outright, right? <laughs> There's no more leftists allowed to politically organize uh, in Ukraine today. Um, and the, you know, the militarized repression of, of East Ukraine began, and that became the Donbass conflict. The Ukrainian military at first refused to respond. Um, uh, there was only uh, one uh, battalion that they were able to send, and when it was met in the Donbass by the people of the region, meeting the APCs and tanks as protesters, they turned around, and the, the new regime began to to uh, disband their own military units, and they sent the battalions in. And the battalions did the, it. The battalions like Azov, you mean, and stuff like that. Azov, right, uh, right sector, then Tornado. There was an, a you know a a plethora of them at the right. Time. So those are the the right wing uh, far right militias that we're far, talking far about. Far right here, militias, right? right? And and you can call them West Ukrainian ultranationalists, but they are Banderite fascists. They worship Stefan Bandera, the Nazi era collaborators, and they. You know, we're much smarter about it. They simply began artillery shelling from a distance. And that that became the Donbass conflict, which eventually became the frozen conflict. And it was quite clear the U.S., the EU was financially and militarily backing the new regime in Kiev. And Russia was uh, financially and military backing the um, uh, people of Eastern Breakaway republics, yeah. Yeah, it was a proxy war. There was a civil conflict and a proxy war on both sides of it. And you can say, oh, you know, the civil conflict never would have broken out if Russia hadn't been backing these the pro-Russian separatists in East Ukraine as they're derided and dehumanized. And that's true. It is also true that the Maidan never would have succeeded in overthrowing the government of Ukraine if it hadn't been for the open U.S. and EU support and orchestration and so on. So, you know, you, you're left with that. Russia regards, you know, they had hoped to force this government into maintaining what had long been Ukrainian neutrality with the Minsk protocols, mm. right? The Minsk protocols would keep the Donbass in Ukraine but grant it autonomy, a, a, a federalized autonomy, uh, and possibly federalizing other areas of the country as well, um, that would allow uh, East Ukraine to keep a veto over NATO, uh, uh, over Ukraine joining NATO, uh, keeping Ukraine's neutrality. Now, Ukraine has long been neutral and balanced internally between very socially different Western and Eastern halves due to their unique history, West Ukraine not actually being a part of Ukraine uh, up until right before World War II, being a part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. And the biggest real factor of their Ukrainian national identity is Ukrainian ethno-nationalism, you know, one country, one language, one people. And 
Um, they hate Russia, right? They do. They, 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 I mean, you could say whether it's justified historically, culturally or not, but they do. Uh, East Ukrainians, on the other hand, are a more pluralist conception of Ukrainian identity that includes Russians and Ukrainians and Russian Ukrainians where there's no clear dividing line. People are so intermixed, family. And and there are many minorities. There are many other minorities. Hungarians uh, in, in the West, the Tatars, uh, other group of people. It's a more pluralist conception rather than an ethnic nationalist conception. And there's a lot in East Ukraine, it must be said, of, of what is, is, is called uh, uh, Sovak, right? It's mm. Soviet nostalgia, particularly in the Donbass. Right. And they view Russians as a, a brother people separated right now by a border. Um, and, um, you know, the, again, there's so much intermarriage. It's really hard to say who is Ukrainian, who is Russian. It's not about who speaks Russian and who speaks Ukrainian. That is a really a false simplification. It's not necessarily West or East, although those are pretty good generalizations. To You can pull up any poll survey map to see it. But Ukraine has long been a divided country. It has kept together since 92 by being internally politically balanced between the West and the East, where the presidents didn't try to rule too far to one side of the country or the other. And that meant geopolitically balancing between the West and Russia, not joining NATO and the EU, not joining the Collective Security Treaty Organization or the Eurasian Union. And that balance was kept up until the Maidan. Right. And there were offers made by the Yanukovych government, by Putin. Hey, let's work this out. You guys can have an EU association agreement, but we have our own existing Commonwealth of Independent States uh, trade agreement that already exists. We can work it out so that we can all trade and coexist together. Nope, that was not acceptable. And, you know, the, the leadership, the EU Council said at the time, Ukraine must make a civilizational choice. They forced it. Ukrainian non-alignment was no longer acceptable. All the gray spaces on the map between NATO and Russia must be absorbed. They look at it like a risk board. If you don't take that open space on the board, then your opponent will take it and use it against you. And that's the logic uh, that has been forced on this by the Maidan, by the Western backing for it both before and after that has fueled the civil conflict in Donbass and has brought us up to this moment. Mm. Ukraine, there was too much resistance from Germany, Hungary, France, a few other countries in NATO to give Ukraine a membership action plan. It has to be remembered that in Budapest in 2008, NATO put into writing that one day Ukraine and Georgia would join NATO, right? It was, it was it said at the time, 20% of the Ukrainian population wanted to join NATO. Right. That was by hook or crook. Someday we are going to bring Ukraine and Georgia into NATO. That was a a future geopolitical declaration. Well, we've nearly reached that point. Germany and a few others kept a formal declaration, a membership action plan being given to Ukraine. But what Russia has seen as the, the regime in Kiev has refused to carry out the Minsk Accords, the Minsk II Accords, which it must be mentioned, were approved by the UN Security Council resolution, even technically by the United States and are part of international law. Ukraine has refused to carry them out now for seven years, right? They haven't even begun. They refused the most basic step 
of sitting down with the political leadership in Donbass and having negotiations because that would be presenting them as some type of equals. And they refuse to do that. They refuse to negotiate with what they call terrorists. Um, and, uh, you know, they have not even begun the process of the legislation that would be required to federalize, uh, provide um, uh, immunity uh, from prosecution um, for, you know, everyone involved on both sides uh, and all the other measures that are that are part of it. It would, could never pass by today's RADA anyway. Um, because it is a hotbed of, of Ukrainian far-right ethnic nationalist uh, sentiment that, that still dominates it. Um, and if they did, then these battalions, right, which now have their own civil society groups, they have their own political parties, but they're also, there's a small, they're spread throughout all the major parties as well. And they have been incorporated and infiltrated into the military, the police, the security services, they almost entirely comprise the National Guard. Uh, they're everywhere. Um, so, you know, the, the attempt to say, oh, Ukraine, you know, there's no neo-Nazis there. They have a Jewish president. Well, <laughs> the, the Jewish descent president uh, has become as must a hostage of the regime that he inherited from Poroshenko um, uh, as anything else. And he has given the lip service that he had to do to maintain the Ukraine that he inherited, um, you know, even though that means saying that Stefan Bandera, the OUN, UPA were heroes, right? Rather than Nazi collaborating Holocaust perpetrators. Um, and the idea that they don't win elections, well, they don't have to win elections because they're infiltrated throughout all of the other parties and institutions uh, power. The elections are always won for them, yes, right? Yes. So, um, what Russia sees happening in the last year is the voices of political voices of East Ukraine, which reformed from the Communist Party and the Party of Regions as the opposition platform, have been silenced. Their leader, Viktor Medvedchuk, an oligarch, like every major politician in Ukraine is, it is still a country where politics is dominated by oligarchs, just oligarchs from different business interests in different parts of the country. Uh, but Viktor Medvedchuk has been imprisoned on BS treason charges. Just now, like uh, Zelensky has also extended the exact same case, the exact same treason charges against Poroshenko. Yeah, but he's not arresting him. He's not arresting he, him. He's in the country. They haven't arrested him. They they tried to. They It was stopped in court. And basically the U.S. and the EU have put pressure on Zelensky saying now is really not the time to do this. <laughs> and okay. they're but, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and put and also put pressure on the courts so much for you know free courts. Yes. And, but, <laughs> courts. yes, uh, but he he does have to maintain an electronic bracelet. Had to hand in his passport, and he's not allowed to leave the country. But I mean, the same case is that they did business with the Donbass to get coal that Ukraine needed to provide electricity because all, most of the coal in Ukraine is in the Donbass. And that was dealing with terrorists because the people of East Ukraine, the pro-Russian separatists have been designated as terrorists. And that made it treason. It's, it's nonsense, right? Zelensky, whose approval rating started at 75% when he took office uh, and promised to bring peace to the country, um, have plummeted 
uh, down to the low 20s. He's facing multiple energy crisis, economic crisis, pandemic crisis, the looming military crisis, a political crisis. He's going after his political opponents, both to the right and, you know, in, in Ukrainian politics to the left um, uh, and, and silencing them. He's, he's charged both of them with treason and he has shut down every Eastern Ukrainian viewpoint, TV station, media outlet, uh, a web outlet, um, newspapers, everything. It's all been banned just completely. They're not allowed to print. They're not allowed to air um, because the party of Viktor Medvedchuk, all right, which, you know, electorally is still a, a roughly, uh, you know, not quite a third of the country. Um, but it had briefly in the polls been shown as the most popular party in the country. Uh, that's something that Zelensky, with his you know servant of the people, a newly formed party named after his TV station where he played the president, um, uh, you know just just couldn't suffer. So he's gone left and right to silence all opposition, you know whether uh, from Poroshenko and his European Solidarity Party or Medvedchuk. So there is no political avenue anymore to to even promote reconciliation of the east with the rest of the country because the eastern ukrainian political voices have now been completely silenced they were neutered in the first few years by the lustration by the banning by the pogrom they reformed once they reformed and started to show strength again now they've been uh, you know dealt another blow with the imprisonment of their leader the banning of the media outlets uh, who were critical of the government etc russia sees that they also see the ongoing militarization on the ground, the NATOization of Ukraine. There are, what they see is there are now some 10,000 10, NATO trainers and advisors in the country, according to the Russian Foreign Ministry, a number which has not been disputed at all, interestingly, uh, by the West. Um, that is far more trainers and advisors than Russia has in Donbass, I hate to tell you. <laughs> they see the UK uh, uh, has promised they are building naval bases, military, NATO military bases in the country. They've signed the contracts. They've begun the construction. Turkey, a NATO member, has sold uh, the Kiev regime uh, combat drones, the uh, TB2 Bayraktar drones, which they used to conduct airstrikes against the Minsk Accords on the Donbass. Um, and the huge amount of NATO, of particularly U.S. and U.K. armaments, uh, missile systems and so on that have been pouring into the country. They see the on-ground de facto NATOization of Ukraine, turning it into a military outpost right on Russia's borders. And they say, this, all right, this is a red line. It's gone far enough. Um, there's no further avenue. The Minsk Accords are being ignored. Uh, the political voices of East Ukraine just completely repressed in silence. We've got to do something. This status quo is no longer acceptable to us. It is an existential security threat to us, is what Russia is saying, equivalent to the Cuban Missile Crisis, which yeah, kind of reversed. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Well, exactly. Not actually, because the Cuban Missile Crisis was initially about the placement by the U.S. of nuclear weapons in Turkey, which then uh. prompted um, the Soviet Union to put nuclear missile systems in Cuba, and the, the agreement was that Khrushchev wouldn't talk about the fact that the U.S. agreed to pull those missile systems out of Turkey so that the U.S. could claim political victory. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. All right. Yeah, this is very, this is very, very interesting. You know why? Because, um, and thank you very much for explaining to the viewers. These are very interesting elements that basically people don't get a chance to read very often. And they don't get to read it because, especially in Romania and other countries, the narrative that has been sold is the one that says something like this. Yanukovych was toppled from power for, uh, by democratic forces, uh, by angry citizens, one which citizens? How many of them? Which and um, let me think. So the idea is, and I was quite surprised to see that people considered to be Russian propaganda the very idea that there are neo-Nazis uh, in Ukraine and they take on power. Even though, even though a few years back in 2017, our Minister of Foreign Affairs had to go to Ukraine since Romanians are a very big minority in Ukraine, and to negotiate some sort of agreement because uh, the laws against Russian minorities and against Russians also reflected on the Romanian minorities since um, learning in your natal language was banned by the Kiev authorities. So even if we have these elements, there is a very weird silence about what's going on in, uh, in Ukraine very weird silence and in the mainstream media you mean right? in the mainstream media and i'm i was quite surprised that even educated people in romania considered that oh that this is the narrative yanukovych was a pro-russian leader and dictator that was taken down by democratic forces and this speaks also to the propaganda war and to the fact that the moment you are articulate and you explain things in a different perspective from a different perspective and focus Focusing on real facts that happened in Ukraine, you are smeared, banned, and also the media stations the platforms. Uh, and platforms are being smeared because they are guilty by association, isn't it? So this is a very, very interesting uh, tool. And the propaganda war is still, I would like you to yeah, comment on. It is in full, it is in full conflict mode, right? And you you are absolutely right you know um i was born an american citizen and i'm a russian propagandist and kremlin troll who just happens to not actually have ever been employed by the russian state or russian media or unfortunately enough receive a paycheck from the russian <laughs> government although uh, if if you would like to you know provide a, a um, recommendation for me I, 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 <laughs> oh yeah yeah well you know I, I i have the same joke for you you know i've been smeared as a russian propagandist or a russian agent and you know my joke is that you know if i only had been that then probably yes. my social situation would have been much better than it actually is I, but okay let's just leave that aside anyway mark let's uh let's focus for a while on this on those uh you know recent events that i just mentioned in my introduction yeah. i mean this kind of new and, and maria mentioned this propaganda exercise basically that now russia suddenly is going to uh, organize you know, stage a coup in Ukraine and they're gonna uh, install the leader like uh, I, I understand that this is just this is just another element in the generally bizarre structure of what has been happening over the last two weeks in diplomatic or semi-diplomatic terms yeah. and their performances because first we we had this me the, the meeting between the Russian and American delegations which wasn't really a coherent meeting in my opinion I mean in a sense that come on they weren't even able to talk much. 
Like they, they just like, you know, the Russians proposed their draft treaties. And on the other hand, the Americans were basically banging their, their, their head, uh, sorry, not their head, but their hand on the, on the table going like, oh, but remove your forces, your military forces from the Ukraine's border. So there was no, no dialogue really, mm. in my opinion. <clears throat> and, and then, you know, NATO Russia talks. Nothing. Then OSCE meeting in Vienna. Pff, nothing. Then this kind of weird back and forth between Lavrov and Blinken because the Americans are suddenly unable to deliver written responses to the Russian draft treaties. Something I don't quite understand why. Then uh, you know the British Ministry of Defense publishing an article about Russian history that was full of misconceptions and nonsense. Uh, then you know Germany closing its airspace to allow, uh, not to allow, basically <laughs> a shipment of British weapons to Ukraine via their air territory. And, uh, you know, th- this kind of things, what do you, you know, what do you yeah. make out of it? What do you make of it in a sense of like, what is the status of security in this region based on all of this? And, and how reliable are, 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 is, are the Western, how reliable is the Western side in terms of delivering or, or you know, any kind of promise or any kind of uh, agreement on like sticking to their end of it? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously the West has refused Russia's request for security guarantees. Russia wanted... Which was obvious that it's going to happen, I guess, right? All right. Like, they, they, they said, uh, you know, Ukraine and Georgia never joined NATO. NATO stops expanding east. Um, the Minsk Accords have to be implemented after seven years. Um, and uh, also, they even wanted to revisit the placement of U.S. Uh, troops and missile systems in Romania, in Poland, uh, and, and so on. Go back to the, the, the pre-1997, i.e. Gorbachev's promise that NATO should not expand one inch forward. All right. Obviously, you can't revoke NATO membership, but they didn't want U.S. and U.K. troops stationed in eastern Ukraine. That was part of their demands. And these were maximalist. In Europe. These were, yeah, in eastern Europe anywhere. These were maximalist demands, right? They were possibly a starting position or they were preparing the uh, internationally and domestically uh, for the next step. Um, it's obvious that they are not going to be met. Um, uh, the, the U.S., you know, the West has claimed Ukraine as their ge- geopolitical territory. They flipped it. They're urinating on it like a dog, and they're not going to give it up. They would rather Russia engage in a conflict with Ukraine and Russians and Ukrainians kill each other that would be better for their geopolitical interests than returning Ukraine to a balanced neutrality. That's the way they look at it. From the Russian perspective, these guarantees are not going to be met. What is the next step? Putin said that they would take their security into their own hands then by military technical measures. What does that mean? That is the U.S. diplomatic equivalent of all options are on the table, which could mean anything from new hypersonic missile systems in Kaliningrad to reopening military bases in Cuba and perhaps Venezuela to an intervention in Ukraine, a military intervention. Now, all during this time, these are the options the Russian generals presented to Putin. I still don't think he's made a final decision, but the Russian generals have at this time been putting into place the conditions where they could implement any one of those conditions. They have not, if you read past the headlines, the Western media is actually accurate. If you get into the sixth or seventh paragraph, past the talking heads, past the headlines, 
of the details, say in a serious paper like the Washington Post, well, more serious, or the New York Times. They will admit that Russia has not been massing more troops than usual. They have had roughly 100,000 troops on the Ukrainian border since 2014. That actually hasn't changed. In fact, the Kiev regime actually has 125,000 troops on their side of the border, even more at this point. But the Russian military has further back, a couple hundred kilometers, been creating logistical centers, staging grounds, uh, where they could, in very short order, begin the buildup for an intervention. And it appears that that is what is happening right now. And there is, I think, credible enough from credible enough military analysts in the West, open source intelligence and so on, that generally I agree with that, that, that Russia is doing this and they are seriously considering an intervention. Now, the question is, what kind of intervention would it be? Would it be to uh, take the rest of the geographic Donbass and recognizing the independence of the DNR LNR? Would it be taking all of eastern Ukraine or uh, up to the Dnieper? Or would they go a step further then and make a decapitation strike at Kiev? The Russian government does not consider the Ukrainian people as a whole their enemies. They consider it a captive nation that has been effectively politically taken hostage and half the country's voices politically silenced. And they see no other option at this point. They are not as good as color revolutions or hybrid warfare as the U.S. So military means are what they have. Um, and the greatest possibility, they've moved a large amount of Russian troops in the past week through Belarus. Belarus is only 80 kilometers from Kiev, the border there. And Belarus sees Ukraine has recently been used to launch a color revolution that failed against them and was involved in a plot with the SBU to try to uh, uh, foil the election in Belarus uh, with this luring of Russian security contractors and creating this nonsense story about Russia trying to admit that now. So Lukashenko now feels that the regime in Kiev is a threat to him as well. And that changes a lot of things that's going on. Right. I believe that the Kremlin is moving towards this last option because any other military option would kill large amount of Ukrainians. Russia so so you're thinking you're thinking that it might be that Russia will intervene massively and they will actually take Kiev. I think that that is at this point a 60% likelihood. Okay, and what is the West hoping for vis-a-vis uh, -vis such a scenario? I mean, you know, so they, they probably got to be discussing it, I suppose. Or... Yes. Well, first, I think that they hoped that Russia would be satisfied just with taking the rest of the Donbass or something lesser than that. Um, secondly, they have been training far-right insurgents. This is news that's come out in the last two weeks in the Western press. The CIA ground branch paramilitary has been training uh, Ukrainian uh, ultranationalists to launch an insurgency campaign, uh, you know, to kill Russians, you know, also East Ukrainians, of course, but Russians um, uh, primarily. They've been doing that in uh, the southern United States for seven years now. They've long been preparing for this. And they've announced that they will arm 
and insurgency. And this will be a repeat of actually what happened in the 1950s when the CIA was backing the remnants of the Nazi collaborators, uh, the, the, the ultra-nationalists in Western Ukraine. This is just history repeating itself uh, to, a, to a very large degree. Um, it just came out in the last couple of hours that the U.S., the Biden administration, is now considering sending 50,000 U.S. troops to Eastern Europe. Um, these, I do not believe, and the Biden administration has said, would not intervene in a conflict in Ukraine because Ukraine is not a NATO treaty ally and they don't want to risk war. And they know that that is what would guarantee any Russian president to make the decision uh, to commit to an intervention in Ukraine. Um, but uh, they will provide political support a show of political support to the Baltic yeah, and and, and also if I may just interrupt here the, the British they seem to be going out of their way uh, you know I, I quite recently read that uh, <clears throat> you know one of their ministers I'm not sure uh, which one exactly right now but uh, sort of uh, presented an idea that Britain could actually enter into some kind of uh, and this is a quote geostrategic alliance with Poland and Ukraine and you know I was like I was taken aback by that because in Poland everybody was very cheerful about it or has been very cheerful about it for the last 48 hours 72 hours whenever uh, she actually said that and I'm like you know uh, this resembles pretty much August 20th, 25th 1939 and this kind this sort of deals they ended up for Poland pretty bad in the sense that the whole Polish, uh, well, state was destroyed uh, and and had to be rebuilt from scratch. So uh, I, I'm just, you know, I, I want you to to, uh, to perhaps try and assess what is uh, uh, what is the end game here for uh, for the West. In a sense, they know they cannot probably take over Ukraine in a manner that they intended initially, like, you know, uh, sort of put it in the EU, put it in NATO, and then, you know, make it their outpost, military, military and political and, and, and in any other aspect. So they know it is not possible. Yet they still keep, you know, their claws in Ukraine, and they don't want to give up, despite the fact that obviously they cannot defend it. So uh, they hope that, what, like Russia will discredit itself by uh, perhaps... Killing uh, large numbers of Ukrainians. Uh-huh, okay. So that's, that, that's what they hope for. Yeah, I mean... Okay. Look, 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 the U.S., you know, NATO, they will gladly fight Russia and Eastern Ukrainians to the very last Ukrainian conscript. They're they're perfectly happy with, with that deal. Russia doesn't regard the Ukrainian people as its enemy, but it does regard the regime in Kiev and the Ukrainian far right, you know, the battalions and spread throughout the military as their enemy. They still hope in the end to win the hearts and minds of a Ukrainian majority back. Therefore, every Ukrainian that is killed, every Ukrainian conscript, is a Ukrainian family that hates Russia forever. So they want a military political option that would remove the regime in Kiev, which they see as the only thing that will effectively meet their goals, causing as few as casualties as possible. So I do Man. believe that Russia does intend to put in an Eastern Ukrainian government in Kiev. It's just not Edward Mariev. <laughs> it's it's uh, not the guy that they said he was. He's actually under Russian sanctions, and he has been a spoiler for the opposition bloc. He's 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 a former MP. He's a nobody. That is a, that is a total red herring. That is a canard. But I do believe I'm almost certain that Russia would, if they do decide on this intervention. 
they would almost certainly have a plan to reverse the Maidan, if you will, uh, to put their own version of Yatsenyuk, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, in, in Kiev. Uh, that, that that is the only thing that would meet their goals. Now the question right, is. But, but- but provided uh, that Russia has been uh, uh, dismissing the idea that they're going to, you know, invade Ukraine or anything like that, and, and they explicitly course, said yeah. many times, I mean, by the way, that they would only say? intervene. Yeah. yeah, if I if I could just finish right, like they would uh, they would only intervene yeah. in the case if they there is an invasion or uh, a military uh, uh, action against the breakaway republics from the side of the Ukrainian army. And, you know, I was wondering whether uh, now the West might be actually even more interested in uh, some provocation occurring or something like that, provided that, you know, even Ukrainian sources were uh, pretty skeptical about the whole hysteria about, you know, massing troops and all the rest of it. I mean, even in Ukraine, people said that it's not helping. It's just creating an atmosphere of tension that's leading nowhere and, uh, you know, is cumbersome even for them. So uh, I wonder whether you think that perhaps the West, against even the will maybe to some extent of the Ukrainian uh, authorities, might actually stage some sort of provocation that yeah. will trigger off the whole thing. It is, and I would is, say they would, also, they would also prevent for a peaceful solution because they issued some uh, sanctions against um, Ukrainians that were suspected to be pro-Russians in the central administration recently. Yes. So I would say they would also prevent a peaceful way out of this. Yes. Yeah, I mean, the U.S. has just sanctioned two Ukrainian MPs in the Rada and two former government officials because they have pro-Russian points of view. I mean, that's that, that's essentially, that is no longer legal in Ukraine. You are no longer allowed to have a contrary opinion on what Ukraine's foreign policy should be. That's treason. Um, and, you know, the fact that they're doing so is helping prevent and helping push Russia towards a military intervention. Russia, I think the Kremlin is still playing a high stakes game of poker where they hope that the U.S. will back down and maybe behind closed doors agree to at least enough of Russia's security demands. And they are showing that if they don't, they will go through with this. But I have to believe that if, which I don't believe the U.S. will back down, will compromise at all, that then the Russian government has to be uh, prepared to go through. Okay, so is this the best we can hope for? Is this the best we can hope for that the Russians and the Americans are somehow, you know, behind the scenes going to reach some kind of fragile agreement that will prevent this, uh, you know, scenario from playing itself? That is the best we can hope for, but I think it's an outside, I think it's an outside hope at this point. Okay. Anyway, okay. thank you uh, for so this much, uh, for yes. this discussion. We're 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 finishing the segment here. Uh, so uh, thank you very much, Mark, for all the insightful comments. Uh, thanks, Maria, and thanks to uh, all the people watching and listening to our podcast. Please go to our Patreon page, Patreon.com/slash/TheBarricade, and to the extent uh, you feel you can afford, uh, support our show financially and our project financially. We'll see you in the next segment uh, in a short while. Thanks. Support the barricade.